0: Welcome to the New Ventures podcast, Davinia Coggan. Davinia is a program manager of the Energy for Impact, but what she's really known in our circles is the work in clean energy access crowdfunding. Davinia, tell us how you got into this whole thing.
1: Yeah, sure. So I actually started my career in, well, went to university and, you know, did the sensible thing of, of getting an undergraduate in commerce and then went into finance, even though I knew from quite an early age that, you know, I didn't want to be working in an office block in a big city. And so I, you know, I was always, I guess, fascinated um, by Africa. Um, You know, at that time, I I really, you know, I'd never been to the continent. I didn't really, you know, have much of an understanding of the diversity of countries there. But for some reason, I was just, yeah, pulled, I guess, um, to doing work there and so I you know started off my career worked for a couple of years in the office block and sort of thought well you know what is this have I really you know done all this school and university just to kind of sit here and essentially make rich people richer and so I started a master's in international relations um, and then I finished that and It was around the time of the financial crisis, like in 2008, 2009. And the company I worked for was divested um, by the European um, headquarters. And I was in Australia at that time. And so I basically, you know, got about I think six months or so payout salary. And so I decided, okay, well now I'm gonna go to Africa. And I ended up working in Uganda, um, just volunteering for six months. And that was more in the NGO kind of space. Um, And then I decided, okay, well, you know, like charity isn't necessarily for me, but I do have this background in finance. You know, how can I sort of put that to good use? And. At that time, you know, I I still had savings left. So I was able to do a couple of internships and fellowships in various places. I was always really interested in, you know, microfinance. Once I, you know, sort of heard of the concept, um, you know, later on in my high school years. And so I moved to Tajikistan um, and worked with actually a crowdfunding platform called Kiva um, and worked with four different microfinance institutions in Tajikistan, Um, and then I worked also in London in impact investing, and then moved back um, to Uganda and began working for Energy for Impact.
0: Oh, great, and then one thing led to another. You, from what I know, that you spent some time in, you know, you worked in both Nairobi and Kampala, and um, then you came back to uh, London and started this crowdfunding program. Uh, You know, what prompted you to think about crowdfunding?
1: Yeah, so I'd spent a couple of years um, working in both Kampala and Nairobi and it was, you know, our our role was essentially to provide um, pro bono, you know, management consultancy type services to off-grid energy companies. Well, I definitely became frustrated that none of the companies I worked with were raising capital. It seemed like there was just such a big gap between the expectations of investors um, and what they were looking for, and what was actually going on on the ground. The project I was working on was funded by the Swedish government, but we also had you know another a number of other projects that we worked on with the UK government. And at that same time, um, peer-to-peer lending and crowdfunding was really taking off. This was about 2015 in the UK. And so the FCDO, the UK government, um, was interested in seeing could crowdfunding be leveraged in more of this, you know, for the sustainable development goals? Could it be leveraged so that we would you know, raise debt or grants or equity from um, the UK public to fund different energy access projects and companies in sub-Saharan Africa? And so we just began those conversations and eventually, you know, that led to the the design of the Crowd Power program, which has now been running for almost six years.
0: You know, and this is what I find really fascinating. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about my background and why I thought, you know, your work in crowdfunding is so important. I started my work career in energy finance. Supporting entrepreneurs exactly the same way as you did running a program called New Ventures, which is funded by Dune Foundation and then later on actually funded by USAID in a partnership with the uh, Miller Center in Santa Clara University. I face this exact same problem. You can work with the companies as hard as you can, but there are really no institutional investors, or at least very few institutional investors who want to invest in this space. And so when you started working in crowdfunding, I, you know, I found it so, so, so very interesting because it's the real solution to this problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it still maybe suffers some of the same issues that we see in the more um, traditional impact investing space, where mm-hmm. there is a, you know, a concentration of funds within, say, the top 10 companies in the sector. But apart from that, you know, there are crowdfunding platforms that are looking at African-led companies. They're also looking to provide much smaller ticket size transactions. So it just makes it a lot more accessible. Um, You know, many companies, they need, you know, someone that is willing to, to provide debt or equity when they're really early stage before they're able to absorb, say, a million dollars a year in loans, Um, they need someone there to provide 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, so they can establish that track record that they're borrowers that repay their loans, and then the borrowers are getting the access to capital so that they can grow their companies. Exactly. So
0: I just read your recent report called Crowd Power, Crowdfunding Energy Access, And it struck me that, you know, the 57 million that has got funded into energy access alone last year is quite a significant number, right? It's about 10% of the total investment in this area. Just tell us a little bit about, you know, how this held up during the COVID year.
1: Yeah, so before COVID, you know, we were seeing basically a doubling um, of the crowdfunding energy access related crowdfunding volumes each year. And... I think by the end of 2020, about $160 million had been raised altogether since we began tracking data in 2015. 90% of that now is debt. But during COVID, you know, it didn't affect all types of capital equally. So within the debt market, we definitely saw um, a reduction in lending. We saw on some platforms up to a 60% reduction in volumes in 2020. But then we also saw on some platforms, particularly Kiva, I'm thinking of the one in the US, and they do lending to microfinance partners that provide um, direct to end user loans for say solar home systems. Um, But they also do... Direct business loans where they'll provide between ten dollars and $50,000 to energy access companies as a working capital loan. So Kiva really actually ramped up their lending. And, and I've just been analyzing the numbers from last year, and they basically doubled their lending during 2020. And that's really because Kiva is more of a philanthropic platform, whereas many of the platforms um, in Europe that provide um, loans with interest. Kiva, for example, is a zero interest lending platform, or they have very low interest rates that just cover um, the transaction costs. But what we saw with the European platforms was that because they're more of an investment product, I think they have different, I guess, risk considerations to a platform like Kiva. So it was really the platform's In Europe, I think the the debt platforms that are lending to, say, those top 10 companies in the sector that were really hit hard by COVID. But then on the other hand, you also have equity crowdfunding, which grew tenfold in 2020. And, you know, we don't understand exactly why that is, but I would say You know, what we often see when we speak to entrepreneurs about equity crowdfunding is that it's really um, the last resort for them. You know, they don't necessarily choose to do equity crowdfunding, but it's usually, you know, after they've spent about 12 months um, meeting with different, you know, venture capital funds, PE firms, um, impact investors trying to raise capital and they've just been unsuccessful during that process. And so they do turn to equity crowdfunding. And so what I wonder is that during 2020, when a lot of investors on both the debt and equity side paused, I wonder if those firms then felt, well, you know, let's actually do crowdfunding instead. And one of the platforms in the UK, one of the biggest, it is the biggest equity platform, it's called Crowdcube, I think they actually had a record quarter in Q3 2020, their best quarter, you know, in I guess something like six to eight years of operation. So I think that sort of goes to show that equity crowdfunding actually grew during the pandemic.
0: Great. So just to, so that I understand this, you know, some platforms got hit by COVID, uh, mostly. Um, Debt platforms in Europe, which had an investment style of product. On the other hand, Kiva, which is in the US, and which is also, you would, the way you are defining it, uh, is a debt platform, but with low interest rates, actually grew multiple times. And equity platforms also grew. So overall, when you compare you know, the COVID year versus the pre-COVID year, in energy access alone, did the overall number of 57 million hold up? between those two years now how did that uh, Um, just give us insight into that
1: yeah yeah good question um so overall it did shrink it shrunk by um about 25 percent during 2020 and you know when we compare that to those previous years where we saw you know 100 growth it you know it's not following the same trajectory um as the previous five years But at the same time, I think 25% is probably not too bad um, in the context of how shocking 2020 and the early months of 2021 have been so far. Right. Okay, great. Uh,
0: So, you know, you've started already
1: uh, talking a little bit about types
0: of crowdfunding, right? Maybe this is a good time to just tell us about the various types and the various platforms that exist and the options that exist for both an investor and an entrepreneur?
1: Sure. So the the big one is debt. So debt is, you know, 90% of energy access crowd lending. Um, And within your debt crowdfunding, you basically have two different models. So one is the direct lending to businesses. Um, These are typically loans of about 10,000 US dollars. There was a huge one, I think in 2019, it was a transaction that was about $8 million um, on the Trine platform. So you can see there's a massive range. And then the the other um, model that you see within debt crowdfunding is the micro loans. So they are more like the loans that go directly to the end users and they range from about $50 um, if it's, you know, something like a, a Pico solar lantern and perhaps mobile charger up to about $5,000 for something like, you know, commercial scale um, cold storage.
0: And, you know, then you talked about equity crowdfunding. You know, what type of energy access companies do equity crowdfunding?
1: Yeah, so equity crowdfunding is still really quite restrictive. Um, The regulatory side of it basically means that, you know, it's only European-based companies that are able to use equity crowdfunding. It is slightly different. And then now, obviously, with Brexit as well, um, there are also a number of changes. So, The biggest crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding platforms are in the UK. Um, The UK has the most mature market because the regulations um, for equity crowdfunding came in over a decade ago. So that really has given the market the chance to grow. There's been that certainty Um, while in many sub-Saharan African jurisdictions, they either don't have you know, bespoke regulation that governs investment type crowdfunding or it's outright banned. So places like Nigeria, SEC is the regulator, I think, in Nigeria, um, they have banned equity crowdfunding and debt crowdfunding. So it, it basically means that most of the companies that end up raising on equity platforms They might have operations in sub-Saharan Africa or some parts of Asia, and then they will also have um, a company that is domiciled either in the UK or elsewhere in Europe. And pre-Brexit, there was quite a smooth passporting system, so like a Swiss company could raise on a UK-based platform, but that all I think is is changing and now there are new regulations in the EU to make it much easier to raise across multiple jurisdictions within the EU, which I think for some of these larger platforms um, will be really beneficial, but for some of the smaller platforms it could you know, increase cost and competition for them. And that for me is a little bit disconcerting because I think some of the most exciting platforms that we work with are smaller platforms and they're the ones that are doing the smaller ticket size transactions, which are, you know, not as profitable, <laughs> um, but it means that they're serving more borrowers, they're much more inclusive. Most of the smaller platforms like Charm Impact in the UK um, and then there's another one with Fund that recently launched in the Netherlands you know they're providing sort of 10 10,000 to about hundred thousand um, dollar debt and equity investments into mostly African-led companies um, so I think it's you know it's important that those types of platforms are really supported
0: Absolutely. But, you know, getting back to QT crowdfunding, you know, we, we had on our podcast a couple of weeks back, Toby Hammond of Future Pump, and he is the CEO and of Future Pump, and he, they did a fairly reasonable raise on Crowdcube, the platform that you talked about earlier, in the UK. And they're, of course, UK domiciled companies, from what I know, but they have operations in sub-Saharan Africa. Are there any other types of crowdfunding platforms? apart from debt and equity?
1: So you also have, I guess, early on, people probably would have heard of crowdfunding more from what we call a reward-based crowdfunding model. So that's like your Indiegogos, um, your Kickstarter, you know, those ones that I think like really made a name for themselves about five years ago or so. There's a one company called Waka Waka Solar that did a number of raises um, and raised, I think, several millions of dollars, actually, on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. But those examples are so rare. And I think it's in some ways been quite unfortunate because it's led to a bit of, of a misconception around crowdfunding. And I've seen, you know, some people in the space sort of focus on, well, looking at the success stories of um, a company like Waka Waka, which sells a solar powered light that looks a little bit like an iPhone and so one side of it is a PV panel um, and then the other side is the light and you know these are the sorts of things I think that they you know look cute to a, a funder in you know a western country and they're like oh okay yeah I want to donate well it's not really a donation because you're you're getting a product in return. So these donors, um, they go into these, these campaigns and they see the product and they're really excited, I think, more by the product. And it means that some of you know these companies actually end up raising a lot of capital on reward platforms, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their business is viable or that the product is suitable for the end users. Um, And so these products, you know, was intentionally created for Western audiences, which are the ones that tend to contribute to the reward campaigns. But once, you know, they start to deploy the units on the ground um, in, say, you know, a country in East Africa, they realize that the product is not appropriate and the product has probably been designed from a very Western mindset. And it also means because of the success of these campaigns that there can be, you know, a lot of hype around the company. There can also be a lot of hype around reward crowdfunding. But in reality, there are, I think there are two companies, Waka Waka and Gravity Light, um, that have used reward crowdfunding to raise what I would call a substantial amount of capital. There are some other examples of companies that have used reward crowdfunding really early on in their journey. So they would use it, say, to raise about 10 or 20,000 US dollars as a proof of concept. So it's usually usually, a seed round or like family and friends. It's kind of like a way to formalize that fundraising Process, Um, but these are you know really tiny transactions, sort of like you ten usually yeah ten to twenty thousand USD, and that is really just as a proof of concept. They might be able to produce like a minimum viable product from that, and then do some market testing that they can then you know iterate from there and hopefully go on to raise money from other grant makers and eventually debt providers?
0: I think the point that you make about the product being cute and very useful for a Western audience who donates or invests in the product, but it not having a market actually in sub-Saharan Africa is very important. I think that's probably the reason why reward crowdfunding revenue really took off for energy access perhaps can take off for, let's say, climate adaptation projects, you know, you know, invest in adaptation or conservation project with the reward of being able to spend a month there. Maybe it'll, it'll come back, who knows. With that, thank you very much.
1: Great, thank you so much for having me. In this podcast, Davinia
0: has given us an orientation of what crowdfunding is all about. In the next part of the same podcast, We will take a deep dive and explore how local African entrepreneurs can take advantage of crowdfunding.